good afternoon, friends, fans, and colleagues. Uh, it's Wednesday, so it must be Voices of the Sacred Feminine Day. Uh, I'm Karen Tate, uh, your host uh, for the last uh, 13 years here on uh, Blog Talk at Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And uh, I want to thank those of you uh, who are our regulars uh, for your listener loyalty and for uh, the constantly growing uh, uh, group of uh, new folks that uh, – get in touch with me uh, pretty regularly and give me show ideas or uh, make uh, wonderful comments on the show or show their appreciation. And um, we have a great show for you today, um, and I think you'll particularly be interested in it if uh, you've had a close relationship uh, with, um, with a dear, beloved pet, uh, whether they're still alive or maybe they've passed. Um, you know, some people might not understand it, but oftentimes these relationships uh, are even closer and more intense and intimate even than uh, those with a human family. And um, we will uh, cover that topic by way of a new book that's out uh, called Soul Dog. And uh, it's actually uh, a, a journey into the spiritual life of animals is the subtitle. And the author is uh, Elena Manis. And I'm uh, really looking forward to what she has to say. She's an award-winning independent documentary director, writer, producer uh, with lots of honors, including uh, six Emmy Awards, a George Foster Peabody Award, two Directors Guild of America Awards, and nine uh, Cine Golden Eagles. She's written, directed, and produced series and documentaries for CBS, PBS, ABC, and the Discovery Channel, including The Amazing Animal Mind, and the PBS primetime special, The Music Instinct. She lives in New York. Uh, her website, uh, if you want to jot this down, uh, is souldogbook.com. So, Elena, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, it's it's certainly my pleasure. And, um, you know, I will be perfectly candid. Uh, when your publisher, um, uh, you know, sent out notice of your book, it happened to be at a time when um, I was still grieving uh, for two of our beloved cats who uh, we had for 20 years, uh, Isis and Zena. They died six months apart, and uh, mm. it was probably one of the most difficult things I ever, uh, you know, had to endure. And, um, you know, and I know some people think that's kind of crazy, uh, but, um uh, I think those of us who have close relationships with our pets, you know, they're, they're our children, they're our beloveds, they're our companions, um, you know, that relationship can be just as close as uh, with a human. I mean, would, would you agree? Absolutely. Is that, uh, a, so, so what was it that, um, uh, you know, inspired you to tell this story? Um, you know, why did you write Soul Dog? Well, it was such an amazing experience that I had with Brio, my soul dog, um, that I wrote it to honor him, first of all, and what he had taught me and what he led me to, um, how he led me to change and, and, you know, really change my life in many ways. And I also wanted to, you know, having been through that, I hope that the book may open other people's minds, you know, to view our fellow creatures or non-human animals in a different way, not as our, 
inferiors as just pets to be controlled, but as you know, our equals even superior to us in in some ways. Um, and as I said, our our teachers, I believe that they come to us often to at the right time in our lives to help us and to teach us. And I, I hope that um, some of the science in the book will also um, open people up to considering animals as feeling sentient intelligent beings who um, have so much to offer us. Right, right. Well, um, in what ways do you see your relationship with Brio as maybe unique or different from, you know, other people's relationships with um, their dogs or cats or beloveds? Well, when I decided to get a a puppy, I was in the middle of my career and I was, you know, quite successful and traveling a lot and a very type A personality and driven, but then I got in a near-fatal car crash on a film shoot, and that was kind of a wake-up call, you know, to think that maybe there was should be more to my life than just working like a demon and getting into car crashes. And I'd always loved animals, as, you know, as pets. I really thought of them as pets. Um, and I never had a dog, although I kind of thought I might like one. I grew up with cats. I I also love cats. But anyway, I decided that I was going to get a puppy to um, bring, you know, sort of comfort and that unconditional love into my life. But um, almost everybody I knew, um, colleagues and friends, thought I was crazy because I was traveling all the time and I didn't seem admittedly to be the kind of person to um, nurture a puppy and, you know, take that time and care, and that was absolutely true. I mean, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, But I I brought this puppy home, a standard poodle puppy, and I named him Brio, which in classical music it means um, with joy and gusto and spirit, which turned out to be very appropriate. But he was um, very independent-minded. He didn't obey me a lot of the time. He didn't listen to me. And I really thought he didn't love me, and this bond that I had expected with my dog didn't seem to be happening, and I was becoming very, very frustrated. I just thought, oh, this is you know like a failure, and I never should have done this. And I got dog trainers, and that helped some, but I still didn't feel I was communicating with the puppy. And uh, I decided, sort of out of the blue, I'd heard that there were people who called themselves animal psychics or animal communicators. And I did a little research, mm-hmm. being a journalist, and called one up um, that I seemed to have a decent reputation and asked her to do a reading of Brio and didn't tell her anything about me or him, the puppy. And it turned out to be remarkably accurate. I mean, it just rang true, and she described where we lived from Brio's point of view and the streets he liked to walk on and things about me and about his personality that there's no way she could have known. So that piqued my curiosity. I should say that I was a huge skeptic, really. I mean, I just I didn't believe in anything about the paranormal or quote-unquote woo-woo. And this was, you know, I wasn't religious. I wasn't spiritual even at that point, and I was trained as a journalist to be very skeptical and not believe anything that wasn't proven by, you know, empirical fact or multiple sources. So I'm the last person I ever thought would have written this book or had this experience with my dog, but 
due to this first reading, I I was curious then, how could this be? And I started calling other psychics. So that that was the beginning of the journey. <laughs> I see. Well, <clears throat> if it's not uh, you know too personal, um, can you tell us one or two things maybe uh, she was spot on about that? Um, uh, you know that that made you start to think that this um, animal communication was uh, could be a real thing. Sure. Well, I mean, the first reading, as I said, I mean, I think maybe to validate that she really was connected to him. It was a lot of detail about my apartment, which was small, and how he navigated around the furniture and um, things. As I recall, about that one reading, I don't. It was too early. I wasn't keeping notes, but. She um, said some things, as I recall, about, you know, my life, that I was very busy and driven, but, you know, from Brio's point of view, he, he was very confident and could handle things, so he seemed to be able to okay. handle that. I recall her talking about that, um, you know, and the, the streets he liked to walk on a a narrow street mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, not a wide street, which was precise. I'd lived on a wide street, but we went to the side streets. I mean, things like that that she couldn't have known, you know. Right, right, so. right, right. <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've, I've interviewed some animal communicators, too, and it's it's re- really pretty incredible. And, and I've interviewed them myself because uh, friends have, have said the very sorts of uh, same things that you're saying. You know, they said specifics that they couldn't possibly have known. And oftentimes it led to um, communication between uh, owner and uh, dog or cat that maybe explained a particular behavior um, or uh, or maybe it could even improve uh, the animal's behavior or it helped the human, um, you know, better relate to the animal. Um, was there anything like that uh, in it for, for you and Brio well, that well, um, that, brought you closer that together? Not in that first reading. Not in that first reading particularly. It was more like it was so accurate and it convinced me that she actually was somehow connected to him over the phone. Um, mm-hmm. um, it, was, it was sort of like that was the big realization I got out of it. Like how could she possibly know all this stuff? I mean, right. in terms of, now, um, how I mean, I wasn't consulting her at that point about it was more his behavior, but, I mean, he was very independent. I mean, he didn't always want to obey me, you know. <laughs> right, right. But, I mean, the, the well, development um, of the connection between us just was a process that took some time. How Can you describe, if you remember, how she maybe connected to him? I mean, did she have to see his picture or... Um, how did how did they link in? No, well, this one um, particularly, she didn't ask for a picture, and I didn't give her one. And she um, um, explained that she got visual images. I mean, other psychics who I've used over the next few years also said they connected or communicated with um, um, animals through visual imagery, especially with dogs, that they, the language, quote-unquote, is is visual. I mean, some of the psychics I came to use later said they heard things, I mean, not in the English language. They would translate into English, but they would somehow hear the dog talking, quote-unquote, or feel something in their own bodies. Um, I, I worked with one psychic who was also an energy healer who was able, well, actually a couple of people who 
were able to apparently feel what Bria was feeling in his body. I mean, that became, you know, very helpful when he had a health crisis later. I can talk about that later if you want. Sure, sure. Um, so it sounds like you uh, you became a believer um, if you if you went down that road of um, you know more than more than one for sure. I did ultimately, but it was a process. I mean, I you know I did several stories um, for the network I was working for, and then I had more personal readings of Bria the, over the years. I mean, the I mean I would say it maybe took two to three years at least before I became absolutely a total believer without question. You know, in the beginning, right. I sort of played the devil's advocate a lot. I tested them against each other. I didn't tell them anything, you know, and I would not have admitted at that point that I was a believer. I was curious, and I sort of put it, oh, I'm doing right. research. <laughs> Right, right. And and so at this point in time, I mean, obviously, I, I, I gather you believe in animal communication and telepathy with animals. Where where do you stand on animal reincarnation? And, you know, do our do you believe our beloved pets come back to us? I do believe that's possible. Um, and I generally am very open-minded in the possibility of reincarnation. I mean, there's actually some interesting research about it, that I include some of that in the book, um, both with humans and, well, there's no research with animals because you can't talk to an animal to recall their memories of past lives. But um, I, I do believe that it's possible for both humans and our fellow creatures to come back. I, after Brio passed, I really hoped that he was going to reincarnate right away. And I looked for a puppy, you know, who would be him. And I did get another puppy, another standard poodle, quite shortly after Bria passed away. But I, I don't, I have him now, and I love him a great deal. But I, he's a different spirit, he's a different being, and I don't believe he's Bria reincarnated. But I, I do believe, you know, it's possible for dogs and other animals to come back and and. Robert Thurman, the great Buddhist scholar who wrote the foreword to my book, you know, explained to me that in Buddhism they they do believe the Buddha himself believed he had lived other lives um, as animals, as non-human animals, including a dog, um, and uh, so it's not a, a totally crazy, you know, out there concept. Mm -hmm. and so. And I talk to people who are absolutely convinced that their beloved animals have come back to them. Yeah. And yeah, those too. interviews me are too. in the book I, I, also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, what would you say uh, were some of the most important things um, Brio taught you? Oh, goodness, um, so much. Well, I mean, starting, you know, just things like to be in the moment. He would um, start with a sort of more concrete examples um, when he was alive. Um, he loved to go into flower shops, for example, and not to get a treat or to be petted or anything. He just would sit there and smell the flowers. And he forced me, he was, I'm, you know, my crazy active type A personality to to stand there with him and just smell the flowers. I mean, it was literally, he was teaching me to stop and smell the roses. 
so and he even though he was very active and spirited and playful, he had a stillness in him also, just a dignity and I called it a presence. I don't for lack of a better term, you could just feel that he was connected to something bigger than himself. Um, and mm-hmm. through him, I, I came to feel and seek that connection myself. So over the years, I, you know, began to meditate and, you know, try to connect to myself more strongly inside. And um, certainly after Bria passed, um, that became even stronger in me. And so, actually, so did the connection with him even after he passed which was maybe the greatest gift of all, that um, I became convinced that spirit and consciousness endures physical death. Um, I absolutely believe that. We can talk more about, you know, what happened, but that was a huge shift in perspective and and realization that came to me because of Rio and our relationship. Yeah, please please go there. Um, Tell us about that. Well, um, um, when Bria passed, finally, you know, he lived to be 15, even after health crisis, the crises that some of the energy healers helped me get through. But um, he did pass uh, when he was 15. I became, it got to the point that I knew I had to help him and set him free, so to speak. Um, so, um, of course, it's devastating, as you know. I mean, you've been through this loss. It's just a terrible experience to go through. But um, when he, uh, the day that the vet came, I actually had arranged for one of the animal psychics to be on the phone with me as a support. And that experience in itself, I'm going to tell you, because it was also very powerful, Um, I was holding him. I spent the last day with him, just holding him, and I was holding him when the injection went in, and I felt this amazing spiraling feeling like it was a centrifuge going up and out, and I I thought I was just going with Brio. I really did. But eventually I, I felt that his energy had left his body. I just absolutely physically could feel it. And the animal communicator on the phone with me said that that's actually quite a common experience with people who are with their animals when they pass, that it's the energy that's been constricted in the physical body expanding as it leaves. So that was somehow very convincing to me also that his spirit, his energy was real, that, you know, I I felt it leave his physical body, but I knew that it existed somehow. And then on the days that followed his passing, the communicators brought these amazingly detailed messages from him, again, I think, to to prove to me that he, his spirit has not disappeared, it was there. Um, There were incredibly detailed reports about what I was doing, um, what I ate, where I sat when I was scattering some of his ashes, in totally precise detail. And then other descriptions of where he and spirit was, that he was with me in my house, in my office, and descriptions from his point of view of the trim on the baseboard in my office in a particular corner. I mean, now this was... Nothing could have been farther from my mind when I was talking to the animal communicator. I mean, I certainly was, did 
didn't even know what the trim in my office was like, you know. So right, on that right. level, so, I mean, it was so convincing that he actually was there with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that that's pretty incredible and uh, and comforting too. Um, so so let me ask you. Um, you know, I, I guess in a way, as painful as this might be, um, did he eventually leave you? You know, or is he still around? Oh, he's still around. I mean, very much so. I mean, he. I mean, I use the communicators less now. I mean, and as I've kind of evolved, I mean, I do meditate every day, and he comes to me often in meditation when I'm still. I I really feel his presence. It's a physical feeling, really. I mean, in my consciousness. Yeah. You know, there's a shift. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I just know when I'm connected to it. And the messages, right, right. When, I, when I do talk to communicators, the messages continue to come about, you know, which so ring true, like about um, things about his obsession with cats, I mean, a little thing, but also about, again, about my life and, you know, my situation. There's no way that communicators could know, you know, because I'm not right, describing right. all that to them, you know. So, I mean, the connection yeah. is incredibly strong today as I speak. And yeah. that, I mean, that's an um, amazing revelation. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it is, uh, it is pretty incredible. And, um, and I think anybody who's had anything remotely uh, akin to this experience you've had, um, I mean, after that, they can never look at animals the same, you know. Um, I mean, right. I, I don't know about you, but I can't. I, I can't even look at the SPCA commercials on TV, you know, with the oh, shivering, starving animals. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean and that's I, what I mean. I, mean. I, just, I mean, you have to see animals as as beings equal to us, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, and, and to think that people are so callous that they. Um, uh, well, I mean, you know, people are callous to each other. Uh, so, I mean, I guess maybe with, you know, that caliber of person, how could you expect them to treat an animal if, uh, decently if they can't treat their fellow human being decently? Right. But it's still, um, it, you know, it's it's uh, it's difficult to see, um, you know, the, the abuse uh, that goes on, you know, and you wonder if it, you know, if it's a powerless person that feels like, well, they can at least have power over this little being, you know. And um, I don't know, I, I've even thought, you know, maybe sometimes animals come back, uh, you know, to understand, you know, uh, in, their, in their journey of reincarnation and on some level to understand suffering. Um, I mean, not that some pets, you know, don't have an incredibly pampered and wonderful life, but some suffer such abuse, uh, maybe more so mm-hmm. than humans. And, you know, you, you wonder if that, um, you know, wasn't their choice, you know, to come back and, you know, understand, um, you know, whether it be joy or suffering or, or, or whatever it is. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm digressing here. No, but, no, um, it's you know, I mean, I agree. Me. I mean, I wonder the same things, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and uh, I mean, anybody who's who's been a regular on my show, you know, I I, I spoke, you know, uh, several times about uh, Isis and Zena's passing, and as you were, you know, re- retelling, you know, how you 
you know, you stood there with him as the injection went in. Uh, I mean, it just brought it all back, you know, because um, it, it was the very same thing for us. And, and, you know, and I honestly believe that, you know, my, my, uh, the passing of Zena helped my relationship with my mother. And uh, it's, it's just amazing with these, um, you know, with these creatures, what they can do to our lives. And, and I mean, what you've described, you know, you're, you know, we're a driven, busy woman, and suddenly now you're stopping to smell the roses, you're meditating, you're thinking, uh, you know, the, about the woo-woo stuff, you know, instead of mm-hmm. just the science stuff. And, um, and, and I mean, and that, that came from, you know, this relationship with, with Brio. You know, not even an, another human being who could speak. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I mean, it's amazing even to me to this day. In a way, I mean, it's just totally changed my my life and my being. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, well, I mean, you know, it's it's probably obvious, but you know, I want to give you the opportunity to to speak it in your own words. I mean, what would you like to see um, in terms of people's ideas, you know, about uh, dogs and animals? And, I mean, if you, if, for instance, I mean, have you become a vegetarian? I mean, I know some people take it to that degree. Um, you, know, what's, you know, what's the journey, you know, the, the effects been for you? Right. Well, I haven't become a total vegetarian yet, although I almost never eat red meat. I mean, only when it's kind of of social situation where I feel I should, you know, but, you know, I I don't eat um, much red meat or even chicken. I eat fish. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of on the edge of being a vegetarian, although I think I would probably start, which I almost am now, as a pescatarian, you know, eating fish and still eating eggs. Um, vegan, I don't know that I could do, but, you know, I admire people who do, and and philosophically, you know, I'm certainly getting closer to that, I guess, but um, haven't quite gotten there today. (laughs) Well, do do you think, um, you know, people's views of animals are changing? I mean, is uh, is culture changing? I think so, yes. I mean, I think we have a long way to go because there's still, you know, much too much abuse of animals as we were talking about. But, you know, for example, um, in 2012, a group of international scientists um, issued the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness. And these scientists um, are very renowned and illustrious, including neurologists and neuroscientists. And they said that the evidence um, shows um, that non-human animals have the neural substrates to to indicate, well, more than indicate, but to um, validate that they have conscious awareness um, as humans do. It used to be thought that only humans have consciousness, but that has certainly changed. There's actually a wonderful article I just saw yesterday or the day before in the Atlantic magazine, um, if anybody is interested, look that up. I mean, it's a wonderful summary of the shift in even science um, and the perspective on non-human animals. Okay. Sorry, just one more thing. I mean, there's a great deal of research that I sure. looked into that's also in the book about um, the current research into animal cognition and and emotions and, um, and the whole issue of consciousness. So... Um, it's it's really shifting, I think. I mean, it's not totally there yet, but it's 
definitely shifting, I believe. Well, let me uh, let me take a break, Elena. Uh, I have a message here from Joe Carson I want to share with listeners. And um, I want to come back and maybe uh, talk a little bit about that or maybe some other things you want to share with listeners that uh, I haven't uh, had a chance to ask you yet myself. And uh, just uh, a shout-out to listeners in honor of uh, Black History Month when uh, Elena and I uh, wrap up our chat. Um, I have something to share with you. Uh, you might be interested to know that modern C-sections were actually invented by African women centuries before they were the standard elsewhere. So I want to tell you about that as well. So when our interview is done, uh, don't go away. Stick with me. Um, okay, so uh, and here is a word uh, from Joe Corson. The psychic state is the collective unconscious which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected, they were together, that there wasn't a separation. And that's what we are trying to return to, is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. Sex is sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. Well, you've been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film, and it she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of goddesses Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but haven't, this is a great opportunity to experience some of the best ones right from your armchair and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book which goes even deeper into the material. And you can buy the DVD and book for only $20 at dancingwithgaia.com. So um, I have been chatting with uh, Ellen Amanis uh, about her new book, Soul Dog, A Journey into the Spiritual Life of Animals. So, Elena, tell me more about, um, you know, the science of the book. Um, you know, tell me about the research into the emotions and the intelligence and spirit of animals that we can maybe track down. Well, one area, as I mentioned, is um, um, research into the uh, animal cognition and emotions, and a lot of this is um, being done by neuroscientists who are, uh, now that we have brain imaging, they can, um, they've can they actually found ways that they can um, do brain scans of a dog, for example. There's a scientist, for example, um, at Emory University, Gregory Burns, who I, I love this story because he said... Um, He's done many studies, but he said um, he did one because when his own dog passed, he wondered if his dog had really loved him or if it was only the food the, <laughs> that he loved. So he did a study using brain scans comparing what was going on in the dog's brains when 
they got a food reward or when they had human interaction. And the, the results showed that um, the dog's um, uh, reward center in the brain responded just as strongly to human interaction, if not more strongly in some cases, as to the food reward. So, but there are um, quite there are studies all over the world um, looking at dogs' brains and showing that they are more similar um, to human brains and human reactions in the brain than we had imagined in terms of um, you know even recognizing human language and figuring out um, how we behave and in the case of dogs I mean they're kind of wired to try to figure us out and and they want to communicate with us and um, there are other studies showing that dogs like there's a famous border collie called Chaser who learned the names of over a thousand objects and you know could actually she actually knew the meaning of the name, you know, not just a sound. Wow. Um, and wow. um, uh, there's just many studies, a lot of studies mentioned in the book that I hope readers will find really informative and fascinating. And then there's a whole other area of research. You've probably heard of Rupert Sheldrake, who's a um, biologist trained at Cambridge University in England, who's really the leading cutting-edge research into um, extrasensory abilities in non-human animals. Um, he's maybe most famous for studies he's done about um, the bond between dogs and their people, um, the phenomenon that dogs seem to know when their person is c coming home, even when it's at random times. And Sheldrake has amassed a lot of um, evidence, you know, comparing the exact times when the dog would go to the window to wait when the person was leaving. Um, it's just fascinating research. And his, his theory is that there are these invisible fields or frequencies that he calls morphogenetic fields. It's a term from evolutionary biology that um, happen um, between bonded um, beings, whether they're uh, members of the same species or different species, like the dog and, the, and is human, or in the case of the same species, for example, homing pigeons who um, seem to be able to find, find their way to their home, um, um, dogs who travel thousands of miles, you know, over strange territory to find their humans. Um, and Sheldrake believes that these extrasensory abilities, which include telepathy and extrasensory perception of, of storms, for example, um, that these abilities are stronger in non-human animals than they are in us. And we may have been born with these abilities, but they're kind of blocked because of all the noise in our crazy human lives. Um, so anyway, he's, a, um, he's written several books, and they're fascinating reads, and there's, there's more about his work in my book as well. Well, that that sort of reminds me of how we hear sometimes that animals uh, get a sense of just before uh, an earthquake or or something like that. I, maybe exactly, it's or a tsunami, to, like they go away from the shore way before there's any warning right, to humans. You know? Right. Well, and and I understand that your focus was dogs. Um, 
but I'm curious if in doing the research, particularly since cats tend to be so much more independent and they're not, you know, they're not quite, they don't seem to have that desire to be, to please their people quite so much as, you know, dogs tend to do. Um, I wonder, was, uh, was, was there anything you ran across uh, for, you know, for our cat people out there? Or, does, or do you believe what you're saying about the dogs probably applies to the cats as well? Well, I think in general it applies to the cats as well. I mean, Sheldrake, for example, has done, there's a lot in his books about these abilities in cats also. Um, and Mike, I actually have a cat as well as a dog now, and the cat actually more frequently is waiting at the door when I come home, you know. Um, so uh-huh. um, certainly there's a lot in Sheldrake's work about cats. And um I, I think the basic um, phenomenon of these extrasensory abilities are all certainly equally true for cats as they are for dogs. I just was focusing on dogs because it was about my dog. That was the basis of the book. Right, right, right. But, I mean, I also um, talked to researchers you... with, I'm sorry, working with dolphins and whales <laughs> who are con- are convinced that they have telepathic abilities. Right, right, right. Um, and um, so it, how does that manifest with the dolphins and whales? Well, um, for example, I mean, well, I did, um, I read um, some interviews with um, whale scientists, researchers, who um, recited it's anecdotal evidence at this point, but they, they cite um, instances of humpback whales, for example, rescuing um, dogs from the ocean or guiding humans even who are in trouble to uh, shore to help them or to the boat to help them, things like that. And I talked to a very prestigious dolphin researcher who wouldn't be quoted because, um, you know, she was afraid of, you know, coming out in the open about believing in animal telepathy for fear of um, jeopardizing her scientific credentials, but she said she was ap- absolutely convinced that dolphins communicate telepathically, um, certainly with each other, and she believes with humans also. Wow, wow. Um, and I realize you, you know, uh, you're limited in what you can say. Did I, I just wonder if she gave any examples, or was it sort of the kind of thing where they would come to the rescue because they could feel that, uh, you know, that, that psychic need of, you know, somebody who need re- needed rescuing or something? Um, well, the, the, doll, the whale researcher was quoted in a book by Carl Safina. Um, uh, so that's, you know, on the record. I mean, that's anecdotal evidence, as I said, but that's um, public. Um, the, I can't really say anything more about the dolphin researcher. Okay. I'm sorry. but Yeah. That's okay. That's okay. Um, so um, looking back on it now, any tips for listeners who might um, want to uh, seek out uh, an animal communicator, uh, you know, themselves? Um, you know, what did you learn in the process? Uh, I mean, how did you, um, you know, how did you find a good one? Well, I mean, I started out just doing research um, on the Internet or, you know, Articles that I saw, um, but as I went along, I you know I did some of that to find good people or people who seemed to be good, but also word of mouth. You know, as the more I got into it, 
you know, I would ask other people who, you know, I thought might have used an animal communicator carefully. I mean, I wasn't telling a lot of people that I was interested in this, but I would ask other people, you know, if they'd ever used a communicator, and if so, who did they like, who did they think was good. And so I certainly would do my due diligence, you know, I would recommend that to anybody getting into this. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm sure that fraud, I mean, maybe not intentional fraud, but, you know, I think one does have to find a person that you feel is, you know, is really, really connecting with your animal, um, that it feels true to you and that you are comfortable with. So sometimes, you know, try a few people, two or three people, and see who you feel most comfortable with and who you think is most connected with your animal. That would be my advice. Right, right. Well, uh, this is uh, this has really been interesting, Elena. I've been, I've enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I, I mean, I'm a believer too. I mean, I I, uh, I I I guess you would say, you know, I was a skeptic about a lot of these things too, until you know, you just uh, find yourself in these sorts of situations, and it's uh, it, it's difficult to remain um, it's difficult to remain a skeptic because of of your own life experience. So I I totally can go there with you. Um, is there anything um, you'd like to say about uh, the book, Brio, your process, the journey, you know, anything uh, that maybe I haven't thought to ask you? Well, you know, just about Brio, I mean, I was so blessed to have a dog, um, to have him or a dog like him to come into my life and lead me on this journey, and I hope that people will be open to uh, listen to their animals and, um, uh, you know, be open to receive what they have to offer. In terms of the book, um, the, again, the website is www.souldogbook.com, and you find links there to buy. And I would love to hear your stories. You can contact me via the website. Um, I'd love to hear from people and contact me, and, you know, I'd love to to hear other people's stories with their animals. Um, you know, I may write a, a second book, so um, I would love to hear from you all. So thank you so much. Okay. Well, uh, well, thank you. And uh, I, I personally will get in touch with you and, and tell you about the mystical experiences around Isis and Xena. Uh, I actually wrote them down because I thought uh, they would – uh, you know, it, in the future, I thought it would benefit people as well to hear the story. Um, and, and, you know, and I think it also gives other people permission uh, to talk about this kind of stuff as well. Exactly. Um, you know, because, because I mean, I can I can tell, you know, the type of woman you are with your credentials. You know, you, you were probably, you know, you, you probably had an awful lot of trepidation uh, coming out uh, to talk about this kind of stuff, uh, you know, and, and uh, but uh, you know, but at but at some point, you know, you um, it it just becomes a, a, a truth. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. and, you know, when you've backed, you, you know, you've backed it all up with the science, and and you know, and that gives even more credit credibility to the skeptics. And uh, I'm I'm so glad you did this. And I guess my final question, um, Soul Dog. Um, I, I love the title. Um, did the publisher recommend it, or was or did was it your idea? Yeah. No, that I mean, was mine. Tell us mine. a little bit about. Yeah. Yeah, I just can't. Yeah, I, I would imagine. I felt like the right title. 
Yeah, yeah, um, and and no doubt, you know, it. it I, I think it was probably a reflection of that uh, that deep uh, that deep and strong bond. I mean, you probably felt like Brio was um, part of your soul. He is. I mean, I, you know, I'm to this right now. I, you know, the connection is there, and always will be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm well, sure you feel the same right way. Right there, listening to you. Yeah, yeah, and he's probably sitting there listening to you talk about him on the radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear from you. So. <laughs> Okay, I, I I will uh, I will give you a shout out, um, and and thank you so much, Elena. And uh, you know I wish you the best uh, with the book. I hope it reaches the ears of many many people uh, who need to hear the message, and um, you know and just sort of uh, elevate themselves. You know, uh, you know, and just understand this. Uh, I don't know what this whole cosmic thing is, but uh, I think maybe every day we get uh, a little bit closer to being better evolved humans, and I think part of it is recognizing things like we talked about today, you know, that we all are interconnected, um, you know, even though sometimes it might be difficult uh, to language it or, um, um, you know, or you maybe you can't prove it scientifically, but, uh, um, you know, the anecdotal um evidence uh, i mean i mean i don't think it can it can be overlooked you know and maybe one day we'll have a way to measure things more scientifically i hope so but i i totally agree <laughs> yeah. okay so just uh your your website uh, uh soul uh, dot com and it's uh and the author uh we've been i've been chatting with is uh elena manis uh soul dog a journey into the spiritual life of animals thank you so much uh for your flexibility today uh to be on the show a bit early i i've really enjoyed our conversation oh i have too I've really i've so much enjoyed it thank you Okay. All right. Good evening. Bye-bye. Good evening. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm sure a lot of you could totally relate to uh, Elena's story. You probably uh, have some of your own, which maybe you should pass along to her at uh, her website, uh, Soul Dog Book. Com. And uh, as I promised uh, at the break, uh, I wanted to share this with you and uh, in honor of Black History Month. And it comes from our roving reporter, Pat, who I want to say thank you to uh, for continuing to send me interesting stuff to share with listeners. So uh, this is about where uh, C-sections were actually invented. And i got to tell you, um, uh, I was surprised. Uh, so it, it turns out that modern C-sections were invented by African women centuries before they were standard elsewhere. So here's a little bit on that. Midwives and surgeons living around Lake Tanganyika and Lake Victoria perfected the procedure hundreds of years ago. When a baby couldn't be delivered vaginally, these healers sedated the laboring mother using large amounts of banana wine. They tied the mother to the bed for safety, sterilized a knife using heat, and made the incision acting quickly as a team to prevent excessive blood loss or the accidental cutting of other organs. The combination of sterile, sharp equipment and sedation made the procedure surprisingly calm and comfortable for the mother. 
After the baby was delivered, antiseptic tinctures and salves were used to clean the area and stitches were applied. Women rarely developed infections, shock, or excessive blood loss after a cesarean section, and the most common problem reported was that it took longer for the mother's milk to come, uh, an issue that was solved with friends and relatives who would nurse the baby instead. In Uganda, C-sections were normally performed by a team of male healers, but in Tanzania and DRC, they were typically done by female midwives. The majority of women and babies survived this, and when questioned about it by European colonists in the mid-1800s, many people in Uganda and Tanzania indicated that the procedure had been performed routinely since time immemorial. This was at a time when Europeans had only barely started to figure out that they should wash their hands before performing surgery, when nearly half of European and U.S. women died in childbirth, and when nearly 100% of European women died if a C-section was performed. Wow. I want to repeat that. And when nearly 100% of European women died if a C-section was performed. I did not know that. Detailed explanations of Ugandan C-sections were published globally in scholarly journals by the 1880s and helped the rest of the world learn how to save mothers and babies in minimal with minimal complications. So if you're one of the people who wouldn't be alive today without a C-section, you have Ugandan surgeons and Tanzanian and Congolese midwives to thank for their contributions to medical science. Wow, what a good story. Thank you, Pat. Well, uh, that about does it uh, for me today, dear listeners, uh, for this week. Uh, next Wednesday, uh, I will have David Chandler on the show. Uh, he is another contributor to my last anthology, Awaken the Feminine. Uh, and David has a wonderful essay in uh, that anthology about 9-11, uh, and also, you know, from the perspective of uh, the, the domination, exploitation, um, you know, from many different angles, from the fact that uh, the act itself uh, to the fact that we really don't know what happened and how, uh, you know, that potential um, lack of transparency, um, you know, is in itself a form of domination and exploitation. Uh, there's so many layers to that onion, and I know it's probably a controversial subject. Uh, some people are afraid to talk about it lest they be um, tinged with, um, you know, the the – um, the mark of a conspiracy theorist or something, but uh, as someone who came to God of spirituality very late in life and who started to realize all the things that we didn't know but thought we knew, uh, I think it is so important in, uh, the, you know, in, in the future that when things happen, we really have to have the courage to look at them, examine them, and uh, even if it's uncomfortable, even if um, we don't want to hear uh, the whole truth, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's the only way humanity uh, can survive and become the... Uh, the type of world that uh, that we want to live in. 
Uh, and also, too, the following Wednesday uh, at 8 o'clock instead of 6 p.m., I will have with me Isadora Forrest. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the rising of Hecate. Uh, so apparently um, her awareness is on the rise, and uh, Isadora uh, is going to chat with us about that and uh, tell us why she thinks that is. And, of course, there will be more. Uh, Isadora was also a contributor uh, to the anthology, and she'll be talking about her essay, uh, but this call of Hecate has become so strong um, that uh, you know she feels it um, uh, important, as do I, uh, to talk about it, and uh, that's what we shall be doing the last Wednesday of the month. So. Uh, thank you so very much for tuning in. Uh, I hope you will remember to click the follow button on the show page there at Blog Talk uh, so you get notice of um, uh, shows in your inbox and makes it easy for you to just click right on it there and uh, listen at your convenience. Uh, I hope you will also um, tell your friends about the show. And if you are trying to get in touch with me and you realize that my uh, website is down, uh, that will be remedied sometime later on in the year. But uh, I lost my domain name, uh, company where I had it registered with, um, uh, went out of business, uh, caused me to lose my domain name. So I am starting from scratch. But uh, anyway, there's a whole story there that I'm not going to go into now. But uh, it actually, I think it's more of a blessing than a um, than, than a problem, and uh, you know now I get a chance to uh, do a whole new website with whole all new content, and that's what I'll be working on later. But if you want to reach me, uh, that's where I was going with this. If you want to reach me, uh, the best way to reach me is through my website, which is KarenTate108 at Yahoo.com, and uh, that goes for if you'd like to make a donation to help me pay for the airtime, uh, to keep the show on the air, or just to continue the work uh, that I have uh, been doing um, uh, as well. So uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, again, please tell folks about the show, and may Goddess embrace you in her golden wings. Good night.